1 Timothy 1, 12 to 20. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet, for this reason, I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Amen. In 12 to 17, the apostle explains the fact that he has been put into service after his conversion. So from conversion and the purpose of his conversion as an example to glorify God. And this is the purpose of all conversions, to glorify God. And then in 18 to 20, he continues to exhort Timothy to persevere, to fight the good fight of faith in contrast to those who fall away from the faith. Timothy continues and others, they fall away. And this will be the usual circumstance in local churches that some persevere and others they don't and are punished. First, verses 12 to 17, the example of the Apostle Paul's conversion. Verse 12, he thanks Christ. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. We see that he thanks Christ. That means that he prays to Christ, which means he considers Christ to possess deity because we would not thank and talk to a dead person. Correct? We don't talk to our dead grandparents, uh, great-great-grandparents. We don't talk to any dead saints of the past, died a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. We don't talk to them. But we do talk to or pray to God. Such as 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That means that all the saints in every place are calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus as Stephen did. Acts 7.59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And Jesus said in John 14, 14, If you ask me anything in my name, I will give it. So, the apostle is praying to and thanking Christ, who saved him, who came into the world, as he says in verse 15, came into the world to save sinners. He recognizes and reminds us of his past, that his past is worthy of thanking Christ because what he was is not the way he is now. Therefore, he thanks Christ. Not only does he thank Christ, he acknowledges that Christ strengthened him, considered him faithful, and put him into service. This does not mean we're not talking, and the apostle is not talking about how he initiated faith in Christ, that he exerted his free will first, and after he initiated, exerted, practiced his free will, goodwill, then Christ gave him eternal life, and Christ commissioned him into the ministry. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about how after his conversion, yes, Christ is responsible for his conversion, but he's talking about the ministerial calling, particularly when he says, consider to be faithful, putting me into service. There's no doubt he's talking about his ministerial calling. Though... The ministerial calling is not devoid of the man he used, to, he used to be. And what was that man? Blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. He used to be those. Blaspheming God, persecuting the church, and a violent aggressor against the people of God. He was arresting them. He approved of their death. Like Stephen, he approved of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, 6, 7, and 8. We read about Stephen. And then he says in 13, And yet I was shown mercy. Why was the mercy of God shown to him and not to others? There is a curious phrase, and people often misunderstand it, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Acted ignorantly in unbelief. What's he mean by that? In a sense, all of us are ignorant of what we need to know. But what, what does he mean Ignorantly in unbelief. Why is a, a person like that a potential or an object of mercy, but not other individuals who are not acting ignorantly in unbelief? What, what is the difference? Um, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Verses 4 through 6. Hebrews 6, 4-6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This is in contrast to 1 Timothy 1. And how is it in contrast? He has not been um, taught the Word of God in its right sense, enlightened, um, tasted the heavenly gift. Those things would not have applied to Paul in his previous life. Yes. They don't apply to Paul pre-conversion. Not that Paul was ignorant of the Bible, but he did not have the sound doctrine. He was not living or professing that sound doctrine for a while. That he was not doing in the gospel of Christ. He was not doing it that way. In that sense, he was ignorant in unbelief. But in Hebrews 6, these men in Hebrews 6, they have all of that sound doctrine. They profess it for a while. They live in accordance with it for a while. But then it says they fall away. So when that happens, it's impossible to renew them. There's no mercy for them. Instead, what is it that awaits them? Verse 8 says, or 7 and 8. 7, the good ground, and 8, the, the bad ground. For a ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. I have two Bible verses. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and... Well, 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. I now rejoice... Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Yeah, so there are two types of persons, some who will be sorrowful according to the will of God, and they will repent for their sins and there are some who will just never uh, they have the sorrow of the world or emotions mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Hebrews uh, twelve seventeen talks about a person who had the sorrow of the world sorrow of the world in Hebrews twelve seventeen. for It mentions Esau in verse 16. It calls him immoral and godless, Esau. And then 17, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So there's also the common issue of the made They have heard the word, but they rejected it, and they... There's no place for repentance anymore. Okay. So temporarily, they hear the word. They go along with it. But eventually, they yield thorns and thistles. Eventually, they show that they had the sorrow of the world. 
not the sorrow that is according to the will of God that is a sorrow of repentance and salvation. So the Apostle Paul was not in the category of Hebrews 12, Hebrews 6, or 2 Corinthians 7, the sorrow of the world. Hebrews 10.26. Hebrews 10.26. Hebrews 10.26 to 31. This one makes it clear because it's using the word knowledge. Right? Because in 1 Timothy 1, he says, he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Hebrews 10.26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's the opposite person. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. There's the phrase. Without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much... Severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wicked, um, playing off of verse 29 specifically, uh, to be comprehensive, it says when they rejected the true gospel, they've insulted the spirit of grace. Mm-hmm. We can also um, reference Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Yes. Insulting the spirit of grace corresponds to Mark 3, 28. Mark 3, 28. We'll read 28 to 30. Mark 3, 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the rejection of the gospel or the rejection of Christ as it is described here is an eternal sin. That is having the knowledge of God presented to you, the true gospel, and rejecting it. Yes. And actually when he says, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, Paul said, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, so he was formerly a blasphemer in the sense of those who were ignorant and unbelief, but he was not a blasphemer in the sense of being knowledgeable and professing the faith. And that's, that's the point from verse 13. Is he's, he's setting himself in contrast to those who have heard the glorious gospel and are continuing to blaspheme as opposed to he who was blaspheming prior to the knowledge. Yes. Yes. This, so this, this verse 13 is really a contrast between Paul and men who were acting evilly with the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And the, the result for them is Mark 3, Matthew 12, Luke 12. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, which, good, in context, verses 3 to 11, he is talking about the knowledgeable blasphemers, and also in 18 to 20, the knowledgeable blasphemers, in contrast to himself, so that Timothy might know what he needs to know for the ministry. Right? And that's what we should know too. You also, uh, when he said uh, he acted in ignorance, uh, Hebrews 9, 7, uh, Leviticus 4, 2, and 5, 15, and 19. Can you explain a little bit? Hebrews? Yes. Uh, 9, 7. Hebrews 9, 7. Yes. Let's read 6 and 7. Hebrews 9, 6 and 7. Now, when these things have been thus prepared... The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second once a year, only the high priest enters, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance." The sins of the people committed in ignorance. Okay. So even in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 4, 2, and 5, and I'm sorry, Leviticus 4, 2, and 5, 4, 2, and 5, 15 to 19, there was a way to atone for people who acted or sinned in ignorance. Yes. Okay. Leviticus 4, verse... Verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord, Leviticus 4, 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Okay, and then there was another reference. Uh, five, fifteen to nine. Five, seventeen to nineteen. Yes. Five. Five. Or five, fourteen. Five, let's read five, fourteen to nineteen. Mm-hmm. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect." From the flock according to your valuation in silver by shekels in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. And he shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing and shall add to it a fifth part of it and give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and it shall be forgiven him. Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, Though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. 
Verse 15 says, sins unintentionally. Verse 18, sinned unintentionally and did not know it. That's Hebrews 9, 6 and 7. Okay, so you ask for an explanation? Yeah, I just think uh, there are people that will say, well, I didn't know. But the God of uh, the Bible, he doesn't leave room for well, I did not know. Okay, yeah, if they say they did not know, they're still guilty. There needs to be forgiveness, okay? Because then they will be made aware and they will be guilty, right? Okay, so... In that case, let's go to Numbers 15. Numbers 15. He makes a distinction in Numbers 15. Numbers 15, 22 to 31. Numbers 15, 22. A distinction between unintentional and intentional. 1522, but when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments, which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one male goat for a sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, for it was an error. And they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel shall will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them, for it happened to all of the all the people through error. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, intentionally for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. Now the contrast. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. So there's no animal that dies in place of the unintentional, ignorant worshiper. There is the death penalty for defiant behavior. And then it is shown by example in 32 to 41 with this man who broke the Sabbath. 
So this is defiant breaking of the Sabbath day, and then he's put to death. Defiant breaking of it. That's why Hebrews says that the sacrifices were for those who committed the sins in ignorance. All right, then the mercy of God is evident in 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 14. He says he was shown mercy, he was shown grace and faith and love. These are all, all combined in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. In verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 2, he explains sin generally, including himself. But then Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. He continues in verse 8, verse, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There it's clear the apostle means that it required, it necessitated the mercy of God to save him. And after he was saved, he was commissioned into this kind of ministry. Anything else on this? Then why? Why does it work this way? Why did it work this way with the apostle? Verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. This phrase does occur occasionally in, in Paul and in John in the book of Revelation, a similar phrase. It is a trustworthy statement. Why is it that he announces this? In this case, he is self-identifying. Why is he self-identifying as stating something that is trustworthy? Because he's drawing attention to it. He doesn't want anyone reading or hearing to have any doubts about what he's saying. He is confident. He's not timid. He's not unsure. He's not confused. He's not demon-possessed. He's not insane. He knows what he's talking about. So sometimes for the sake of the hearers, not because he himself is boasting, but for the sake of the hearers, the hearers need to know that the speaker or the writer is fully aware of what he's saying so that you have confidence, okay, I'm reading, I'm listening to a sane man, a sober man, a man with a sound mind, and he, this one wants the hearer or the reader to fully embrace what he's saying. 
He's saying it with full conviction. That's why he's saying it deserves full acceptance. Don't be confused and don't doubt. John 834, like anytime Jesus says truly, truly, I say you. Okay, John 834. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. distort the truth of scripture and even when Paul is clear, like the Galatians, they're foolish and he Paul said, Who is bewitching you? Yes. You know, so when he says this it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, he's being clear that that's because men love to distort the scriptures. Correct. Correct. He's being clear. So he ha- has to make certain that everybody understands what's at stake and what they need to do. Fully accept what he's saying. Any more on this? Uh, Matthew 9, 12 and 13. Matthew 9, yes. Matthew 9, 12 and 13. Matthew 9, 12. But when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, by those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why this one? Because uh, Paul said Christ came into the world to save sinners. So okay. Says, yes. On the next part, that he came into the world to save sinners. Yes, that's his purpose. Not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who are the righteous in Matthew 9? Who are the righteous in Matthew 9? Are they the truly righteous? Or are they the self-righteous? The, self, the self-righteous. So th- this also shows that Men need to understand that their self-righteousness is worthless, that they need to recognize their sin. Back to verses 8 to 11 in 1 Timothy. They need to understand their sin. Galatians 3, otherwise, if life could be given by law and Christ died needlessly, there's no point in Him coming if they're already righteous. Yes, back to Galatians Galatians 2.21 Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. If righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. Also 3.21 and 22 Galatians 3.21 Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. All right, then. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Among whom... I am foremost 
of all. He understands himself to be the foremost of sinners. Is he saying this because he's exaggerating or is he saying this as an expression of something else? It's an expression of humility. That's exactly right. It's an expression of humility that he understands that when he looks, examines his own life, that he is a great sinner and the foremost of sinners. Though technically speaking, we might be able to list 10 or 100 examples in history of men who did much worse things than the Apostle Paul, even against Christians, even if it were temporarily or permanently they've done worse things against the Christian church. Of what? Of self-awareness. Self-awareness? How, how is that? Which, if he's pointing it out that he is a sinner, that he's saying foremost of all, he's saying that, you know, like, we all sin, you know, you should consider yourself the same as well. So, and have that self-awareness that you are a sinner. So, if you, um, sorry, let me find that verse that talks about that. If, if we don't have, while you're doing that, if we don't have self-awareness that we are sinners, what kinds of things do people say when they have been accused of sin who do not have self-awareness? What do they say? Judge not. Judge not. Do not judge. You're unloving. You're ungracious. Don't project your sin on me. Don't project your sin on me. Don't pro- it was a mistake. I, maybe I should have done it a different way. I have the mind of Christ. I have the mind of Christ. Yes. Did you find the verse? I was, well, I was, I was looking at it. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was Paul who was describing uh, I beat myself daily uh, or... I die daily? I die, yeah. That one? Or I buffet my body? I buffet my body. 1 Corinthians 9.27. 1 Corinthians 9.27. And by the way, he says, I die daily in 1 Corinthians 15.31. I die daily. 1 Corinthians 15.31. 9.27. The sentence starts in 26. 9.26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. And what do you see in this verse? Uh, just, I mean, again, pointing to Paul's um, realization that, you know, uh, I mean, going back to the Romans um, 7:14, um, that he's aware of the sin that's within him, that there's two natures, and that you have to shed light on a sin that's in your life. Right, so. right. 
He wouldn't be saying that he buffets it daily if there was nothing to resist in the flesh, right? It's also mentioned uh, to not uh, bring up past sins. Oh, yes. Or new creations. Or new oh, yes. If we're new creations, then don't bring up past sins. But the Apostle brought up past sins. His own past sins, right? Didn't he bring it up right here? 1 Timothy 1.13 Formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. Save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So we are to bring up past sins. We don't need to always and in every context go into the gory details, but to acknowledge that we were sinners and we did commit certain sins and then explain to people that this is who I used to be, but I'm not that anymore. That we must do, right? Uh, does the New Testament have a... Well, what is the word? What is the name or the occupation it gives to Rahab. When, when Rahab is explained, usually in churches with Sunday school, and the children are five, six, seven, ten years old, what do the teachers say about Rahab? What, what, what do they say about her? They say, there was a woman named Rahab, and she received these spies... And she saved them or spared them from the king. And then Joshua and Israel, they go and conquer her city. And she was, so she was a woman of faith. That's how it's usually explained, is it not? Do the teachers, especially if they are women, do the teachers tell their children in the Sunday school class what her supposed occupation was or what her notorious sin was. Do they do that? No. And what does the Bible call it? In, in Joshua chapter 2, what does it call it? What does it call her? A harlot. A harlot. A harlot. But when the New Testament refers to her in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Rahab, does the New Testament simply say, Rahab, the converted godly woman. What does it call her in the New Testament? She's dead and gone, right? She's buried. She was saved, no doubt. But in the New Testament, what does it call her whenever we think about her? In the New Testament. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. Could you imagine saying that today? Rahab the harlot. But she's not that anymore. Yes, it's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 31. By faith, Hebrews 11, 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. James 2, 25. James 2.25 And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. What is 
the effect, therefore, of remembering her as Rahab the harlot. Where she was and the fact that she was... Saved. Yes. Where she was, the way she used to be, and now the fact that she is saved. To the glory of God. To the glory of God. You only know how bright a star is when it's set against the dead blackness. Yes. You only know. That's, that's good. You only know how bright a star is if it's set against the backdrop of the darkness of the night sky. Very good. Okay. That's what Paul's doing here. So that Timothy might have discernment, wisdom, understanding in seeing the way people are. Verse 16. We're making the connection to modern times and why this is the case. 116 says, And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. It says he is an example. And all the rest of the Bible, the examples in the Bible, are there examples for us to see the difference between a true convert, a false convert, a true believer, a false believer. Right? Does the Bible give us examples for that purpose? Are we supposed to study these examples? To understand the difference? To make a distinction? Yes. Even in terms of daily life. Daily life. This we could see at any time we walk or travel anywhere. Proverbs 24.30. Proverbs 24.30-34. Proverbs 24.30. We must note this because there are detractors who say that we shouldn't focus on the negative. We shouldn't think about the negative. We don't, shouldn't think about what people do when it's evil. Just think about their virtues. Don't talk about their vices. But Proverbs 24.30, when you see a vice manifested, what are you supposed to do? 24.30, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold... It was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it and I looked and, I, and received instruction. And what was it? What did he learn? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. In verse 33, the excuse is, I just need a little sleep. 
just a little sleep, just a little slumber. I'm just folding my hand just for a break. I just need a five-minute break. That's what the excuse maker, that's what the sluggard says. That's why his field is overgrown with thistles and nettles. The stone wall is broken down. That's why there's no fruit in the vineyard. That's why nothing is growing. Because he's been making excuses just a little bit. I just need, everybody needs to rest. What do you think? I'm a slave? I'm supposed to be working hard all day? So you see the excuses? So when you see that, you reflect on it. Well, the outcome, the product, the result of what's on his land shows he's a worthless man. And are we supposed to be the same? No. Evil examples in the Bible and in daily life are presented to us all the time for us to know to reject the one and embrace the other. For what end? 17. Here, this is another way in which preachers of the gospel fail to understand. Verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why do people live? Generally speaking, the people of the world, even when we lived, for whose sake did we live? Me, myself, and I, and my. And today, selfie. Selfie. So that Hundreds, if not thousands and millions of people, billions even today, can see the selfie. Right? But here, 17, whether we eat or drink, let us do to the glory of God. Right? We live for the glory of God. Right here, he's talking about it. Honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Individuals are that way. Unbelievers are that way. The flesh is that way. The world is that way, correct? But pastors are also that way. Fame, fortune, and fun. Pastors are in it for fame, fortune, and fun. They're in it because they are hirelings. They only care about themselves. They don't care about the souls of men. They're in it because of money, sordid gain. They want to enrich themselves. They have the love of money, which is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. 1 Timothy 6.10 So, they're not doing it for the glory of God. If they were doing it for the glory of God, They would be focused on glorifying God, the way the Bible says, not promoting themselves, not trying to maintain or present a legacy for future generations to remember. They're not trying to do it for that. They're doing it for the souls of men. They would preach against sin, And if they preach against sin, then they would not have hordes and crowds of people attending. The size of the audience, the size of the congregation, would be much smaller. 
than the thousands and thousands, or even hundreds and hundreds. That's, that's the glory of men. But here, it's for the glory of God. Just speak the truth. Speaking the truth in love. That's what has to happen. Correct? For the glory of God. Any more comments on this paragraph before we move on to the next one? Second uh, Corinthians 5.15. And He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. How about also 2 Corinthians 4, 5? 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. John the Baptist, I must, he must increase and I must John the Baptist, John 3, 30. John 3.30 He must increase, but I must decrease. 3.30 John On the contrary side, Isaiah 30, verses 9-11 Isaiah 30, 9-11 To the contrary is Isaiah 30, 9-11 30, verse 9 For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. How is this in contrast? They, uh, instead of saying, I must... Decrease and the Lord must increase. They're saying the Lord must decrease and I must increase. Yes. They want to hear everything but the Word of God. Yes. They don't want to hear about the Holy One of Israel. They want illusions and pleasant words. Yes. Next is the contrast between Timothy and the two apostates. Hymenaeus and Alexander. First, what is Timothy to do? 118. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. He is supposed to live according to what he was ordained to do. First uh, Timothy 4.14, Do not neglect, 4.14, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The presbytery or elders. He was gifted. Prophecies were made. And he should live according to what was stated. To what end? Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. All fights are not good fights. But there is a good fight. 
First Timothy six twelve. Six twelve. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And also Second Timothy four seven. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. So what is this good fight of faith? And how is it contrasted to bad fights? Is all fighting sin, according to this verse? No. So what is it? What is the good fight of faith? Beating of the body. So that would be, that's 1 Corinthians 9.27 and also 15.31. I die daily. That is that we are fighting against sin. Sin in us and sin in others. We're fighting against sin. That's the good fight. So if we are broaching the subject of sin... Is that contentiousness? Is that divisiveness? Is that a bad fight? No. No. Though we may be accused of that, that's not what the Bible means. We have God on our side when we fight the good fight of faith against sin. Another good fight is against false gospel, false Another good fight is against the false Gospel. Any, any proclamation of a false gospel. Any proclamation of a false gospel. How do we know that? Do we have a verse that's... Well, uh, Titus, uh, Titus chapter 1. Titus 1. Titus 1. Which verse? Um, uh, verse 9. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And verse, 11. verse 11, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And 13, this testimony is true for this reason Reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. They say if you reprove severely, you're harming people, you're creating division, you're unloving, you're ungracious. Just so show some mercy. Right? That's what they say. Give me some room. Let me breathe. Right? Don't be so uptight. Don't be so serious. That's how they say it. But what is the goal of reproving severely? That they may be sound in the faith. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27, 6. Proverbs 27, 6. Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, 
I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend. So that's a good fight to contend that way. How about 2 Corinthians 10.5? 2 Corinthians 10.5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We destroy speculations and take every thought captive. That's the language of warfare, is it not? To destroy and take captive. The language of warfare, fighting the good fight against the false gospel, false doctrine. Okay. He says, keeping faith and a good conscience. Keeping faith so that we are not abandoning the faith. Right? So faith must persevere. He who endures till the end shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. But also a good conscience. What's he mean by keeping a good conscience? What would the opposite be? An evil conscience. Right? So what is this good conscience Yes, so it's still dealing with the sin in, in us. To take every thought captive. This is what should start at our conversion. 1 Peter 3.21 1 Peter 3.21 And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9.14. How much more, 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 10.22 10.22 Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 10 verse 2, Hebrews 10, 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? Mean, meaning, the guilty conscience due to sin. So we're supposed to keep 
faith and a good conscience. They go together. Well, and, and Paul again is reminding Timothy to set himself apart from those who are false teachers, because the false teachers reject their conscience. Not only is their is their conscience not good, they reject their conscience. Uh, Romans chapter one, verses eighteen and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So these men know God, but because they continuous, continuously revile God, they're ignoring their conscience. Yes. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Or give thanks. Right. Romans 1, 18 to 23. Also Ephesians 4, 19. Ephesians 4, 19. 4, 19. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You're saying their conscience is callous? Yes. Yes. Callous, callous conscience. Uh, we could also say seared, seared conscience, as it says in 1 Timothy 4, 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Callous and seared in their conscience. But our goal is the opposite. 1 Timothy 1.5, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Okay, then, in contrast, others have rejected it. Some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Temporary faith is not true faith. Fickle faith is false faith. And here, they suffer shipwreck. If they suffer shipwreck, did the ship reach its destination? No. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter Two. Two nineteen? Somewhere, yeah. Eighteen, nineteen, somewhere in there, yeah. Okay. First John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. So they walk away. By the way. In 1 Timothy, we talked about the Ten Commandments in verses 8 to 11. In 1 John, this is a challenge for all of us. In 1 John, can we find the Ten Commandments broken in 1 John? Certainly, everyone understands 1 John to be preaching, love God and love your brother. Right? 
That's the first four of the Ten Commandments and the last six of the Ten Commandments. Love God and love your brother. It's certainly preaching that. But can we find examples, specific examples of all Ten Commandments at least once mentioned either in a positive way or a negative way in that we should keep it in a certain way or it is being broken by people? Such as 1 John 2.19. Which commandment would it be in 1 John 2.19 that they are breaking in the explicit way? Certainly there's going to be explicit examples and implicit examples. If they are no longer with us, then what are they breaking of the ten? The day of the Lord. Because they're not going to gather with the true people of God. They're going to go find some false believers if they go to church. They'll find some false believers, but they won't stay with the true believers and worship the true God on the Lord's day. So they are going to break the fourth commandment. Correct. All right. So in this case, Hymenaeus, we have two examples. Now, Hymenaeus and Alexander. It so happens that here we have these two names mentioned. In 2 Timothy, in the book of 2 Timothy, the apostle happens to name two false teachers in each chapter. Two false teachers in each chapter in 2 Timothy. We point this out because some say whenever you preach against false doctrine, you should never name names. If you name names, then you're being evil. You're being unloving. You're being judgmental. You're actually name-calling if you name names, and you're slandering them publicly, and you cannot slander publicly. 2 Timothy 2, 1.15. 2 Timothy 1.15. Phagalus and Hermogenes. 2 Timothy 2, 2.17, where we meet Hymenaeus again. 2.17. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. 2 Timothy 3, 3.8. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. 4.14. Alexander the coppersmith, did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. 4.14 and 15. Most likely the same Alexander as 1 Timothy 1.20. Hymenaeus, he was teaching that the resurrection has already taken place. And Alexander the coppersmith opposed vigorously the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. And in Acts 19.33, he was in cahoots with the tradesmen making idols, and he despised losing his income 
and worshiping the goddess Artemis, Artemis in Greek in the Latin language, the goddess Diana, Diana or Artemis. And he didn't want to lose money, so he opposed the Apostle Paul. That's what we're dealing with here. So names are mentioned, and names are mentioned actually from Genesis chapter 3 and 4 all the way into the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation chapter 2, the Nicolaitans and Jezebel are mentioned. In Genesis 3 and 4, Adam and Eve and Cain, Lamech, in Genesis 4, they are mentioned. Names are mentioned everywhere to give specificity to who we're talking about and a point of reference. I mean, Satan is mentioned too. Satan is mentioned. Shall we not mention him? Yes, they actually believe that. Don't talk about the devil. The devil's not behind everything. Ephesians 5.11 Ephesians 5.11 Ephesians 5.11 11 11 and 12 And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. We must say this because sometimes we will read an article by a Christian, Christian pastor, an evangelical pastor, and he will properly describe some heresy, some false doctrine. And he'll say, this is a very common false doctrine. It's very common. But he'll never mention a name. And he'll say, and it's in evangelical churches. It's in Baptist churches. It's in the Southern Baptist Convention. But he'll never mention a name. Well, then how have you helped us? How have you helped us if you don't mention a name? What if one of us are listening to him right now? Yes, one of, one of, what, what if one of us is listening to that false teacher right now? And why is it that they don't want to mention the name? Because they'll get in trouble. They'll lose their audience. Okay. So what is it that the apostle has done to these two false teachers? I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. What's he mean here? Delivered over to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. We have a similar phrase in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In your Bibles, if you have cross-references for verse 20, it would give for verse 20... 1 Corinthians 11.32. 1 Corinthians 11.32. For the phrase that they may be taught not to blaspheme, where it says, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, According to this interpretation, 
It has to do with physical punishment that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Because that's what happened to the Corinthians. And that may be the case. That the physical punishment, bodily punishment, is carried out. That's one interpretation. That the bodily punishment is carried out in order to repent or to purify from sin, to humble the person so that he might repent. Or bodily punishment that he might be condemned. In the case of Job, Job 1 and 2, especially Job chapter 2, he did receive some bodily affliction that it might purify him, that he might humble himself by faith in God. Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23, 13. Proverbs 23, verse 13. 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod. That's physical punishment, right? And deliver his soul from Sheol for the spiritual benefit. Physical punishment for spiritual benefit. Deliver his soul from Sheol, from eternal death. Or is he meaning it in the sense of church discipline, excommunication, that they might be put out of the church, that they might be taught not to blaspheme because they show themselves to be unbelievers. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, which also in your Bibles, if you have a cross-reference, 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 is mentioned as compared to 1 Timothy 1.20. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, there it does explicitly call on the one delivered over to Satan to be expelled from the local church. Remove the wicked man from among you. And it calls him, that's 5.13, and it calls him in 5.11 a so-called brother. Now, if he never repents, he's still going to be taught not to blaspheme because he's being punished. And on the day of judgment, it's going to be confirmed. He should never have blasphemed God. Either way we take it in 1 Timothy 1.20, it's not good to be delivered over to Satan. And both are possible, biblically speaking, because of 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11.32. 5.5 and 11.32. And it isn't just for the benefit of the blasphemer that he is rebuked. It's for other people witnessing the blasphemer being rebuked. And that's highlighted in Acts 13, starting in verse 45. It's also for the purpose of others who witness the blasphemers to learn from it? Yeah, to learn, to witness the blasphemers being rebuked. To, to learn from that. To learn from them being rebuked. From Acts 13, 13. Starting at verse 45. Okay. Paragraph begins in 44, in, at least in this Bible. Yep, 1344. 
And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Where do you see that they that the so, believers might observe? Starting in verse 45, when the Jews uh, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and Barnabas, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas immediately contradicted their blaspheming, and as a result, uh, the Gentiles uh, heard the word of the Lord, and they began rejoicing and glorifying it. Yes. And that was brought to them through the Jews blaspheming and Paul and Barnabas contradicting yes. and rebuking that blasphemy. Good. In 1 Timothy 5.20, 1 Timothy 5.20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. When we speak of the unrepentant sinners in the presence of all and even rebuke them in the presence of all, it teaches the rest of us to be fearful of sinning. It's a deterrent to sin. It's a, it's a secondary it's a secondary response to Matthew 18 third stage, bringing the sinner, bringing the sin to the church. It's both to rebuke the sin, but so that the other people in the church can learn to fear yes. the sin. It's a, it's, a, it's a secondary... Right. To rebuke the sin and a secondary one to teach the observers <clears throat> not to do the same. To fear sin. To fear sin. <laughs> Jude 7. Jude 7. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And we can also add Romans 1, verses 24 to 27. Romans 1, 24 to 27. Romans 1, 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned 
the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. No, in 24 and 26, we see this same concept of giving one over and this person being God. And then we also see in Jude 7 that it is an example to those who believe. Okay, God gives over so that it's an example to those who believe. Right. Anything else? Blaspheming in the name of God, even we teach our children not to say the word <coughs> on G when they say it mm-hmm. out loud. So mm-hmm. even this little thing is a blasphemy. I mean, it sounds like a little thing, but it's because uh, Ten Commandments on verse 7, uh, Exodus 20, verse 7, says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him in punish. Who takes his name in vain. So when people do that, that's what they're doing. Uh, mm, uh, train a child as well. The way he should go, even when he's old. He will not depart. Mm-hmm. Yes, Exodus 20, verse 7. Don't take the name, of the, the name of the Lord in vain. And train children that way. Proverbs 22, 6. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.